Let us pray. Father, we praise you for the great love that you have shown in giving up your own son, your only son, for us. Grant that we, by faith, might behold him and know the love that he has for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy Week is a time of focused meditation upon the final sufferings and death of the Son of God. The Thursday before Easter, or Maundy Thursday, is also associated with Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples before his death, as well as the institution of the Lord's Supper. Some of today's readings are associated with that, our epistle reading, for instance. For thousands of years, Christians throughout all the world have not only gathered in worship for prayer and the reading and preaching of the word, but have also maintained this shared meal together, a meal of thanksgiving or Eucharist, a meal of bread and wine, a sacramental meal, a meal with a meaning. The meaning of the broken bread is, this is my body broken for you. The meaning of the wine is, this is the cup that was poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant, the everlasting covenant that brings lasting forgiveness of sins. We are going to have that meal this evening and on Sunday too. But tonight's sermon text is the assigned gospel reading, Luke's account of Jesus' crucifixion and death. You might say, that sounds like a Good Friday sermon, the death of Jesus. It's a Good Friday thing. It's not just a Good Friday thing. The whole week is focused on the final sufferings and death of Christ. Each of the four Gospels' accounts of Jesus' crucifixion are assigned in the prayer book throughout the days of the week. Monday was Matthew's Gospel. Tuesday and Wednesday were Mark's Gospel. Thursday, today, is Luke's Gospel. And tomorrow, Good Friday, is John's Gospel account. Indeed, for this very reason, another old term for this week is Passion Week. And really, what is the Lord's Supper all about? The Lord's Supper, first instituted on a Thursday evening so many years ago, is about Good Friday. It points to the death of Christ for our salvation, his body broken, his blood poured out. Tonight, I want us to focus on Luke's account of Jesus's last words. We won't be able to move through every verse of this somewhat lengthy gospel reading, but we will instead look at every account Luke gives of Jesus speaking. One thing that happens as you get older is time starts moving faster. It becomes a precious commodity. And if I told you that tomorrow would be your last day on earth, every word you spoke or didn't speak, 
would be loaded with an extra significance. Now, every word that Christ speaks is significant, but these words that he speaks in his final hours are especially worthy of our attention this evening. The first recorded speech of Jesus is found in verse 3. When the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Notice, Jesus does not deny being the king of the Jews. But he affirms it in such a way that it comes across a little edgy, perhaps. You have said so. Is this how you talk to a a governor who asked you a straightforward question? You're saying as much. He affirms it in such a way that puts the onus on Pilate and adds a bit of ambiguity to the whole matter. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is the chief priests, elders of the people, Sanhedrin, want to put Christ to death. But they're Jews living in first century Palestine. They don't have the authority to put anyone to death. They are subjugated to the Romans, and the Romans retain the right to enact the death penalty. So they have to get the Romans sanctioned. How do they do so? They say, he's misleading our nation. He's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Kind of a twisting of one of his teachings. He actually never did that. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Christ means anointed one. Uh, For Jews, they know what Christ means. The promised ruler who would come and save God's people. They know what Christ means. But uh, for the Gentile audience, for Pilate and Romans, they spell out the significance of Christ. He's a king. And that's why Pilate asked him, are you a king? It's essentially the same as asking him, are you the Christ? But from a Gentile perspective, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Pilate, we learn, is aware that there's something more going on than merely the accusations being leveled against Jesus. Is Jesus a a revolutionary threat? Is he going around telling people to stop paying taxes and plotting something against Caesar? Um, Well, in fact, no. And Pilate seems to recognize this. He recognized there's some ulterior motives here behind these religious leaders. And so Jesus' response doesn't deny that he's the king of the Jews, but he kind of says, you have said so. What do you think, Pilate? What do you think's going on here? And yet that is just who Christ is. He is the offspring of David, come to rule and reign over his people. He has the power and authority over the natural forces and the spiritual forces of the earth. He is the Lord 
who heals with a word, who casts out demons with a word, who calms storms with a word. And the Gentiles are now confessing it. Jesus is the Lord. This is what we learn from Jesus' first last word in verse 3. He is the king of the Jews and of all creation, of you and me. The next recorded speech of Jesus is, in fact, silence. Verse 9. Jesus is sent to Herod. Pilate hears that Jesus is a Galilean. And when he learns this, he sends him to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Herod being the ruler over the region of Galilee. Pilate does this to offload some of his own responsibility and, uh, be, and be able to kind of get a second opinion on this. Perhaps Herod can deal with this so I don't have to. And Herod, for his part, has been wanting to see Jesus for quite some time. Earlier in the gospel, uh, he had been wanting to see Jesus. This is the same Herod who had John the Baptist put to death. He wanted to see him. He was very glad to hear that Pilate was sending him over because he had long desired to see some sign done by him. And verse 9 says, he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. Jesus makes an answer to Pilate, apparently by Luke's account, a, a short one, a kind of ambiguous one. But he does say something here. To Herod, he gives no answer. This Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, claims to be a Jew, claims to be one of the Lord's people, and yet he is a deeply morally compromised man. This is why John the Baptist called him out for his sin, and ultimately this led to John the Baptist's beheading. Jesus will not give an answer to him. At all. He's questioned extensively and is silent the whole time. He will not gratify Herod's curiosity. But not only that, verse 10 says, the chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. So the religious leaders are there and they are accusing Jesus as well, and still he makes no answer. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not defend himself against the Pharisees' accusations, against the chief priests' accusations. He did not respond when Herod's soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. As the Apostle Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see the silence of Jesus in verse 9. He is the lamb heading to the slaughter. He's not trying to run away from this. He's going to go there. But also, his silence can be a form of judgment too. He's not going to gratify the curiosities of this wicked man. Some will receive 
No answer. The next last word of Jesus in Luke's account comes a good deal later. So we see that theme of him being silent like a lamb led to the slaughter, just in that a very good many events pass and we have no recorded speech in this gospel from Jesus. It's not until verses 28 to 31 that we read of Jesus again speaking. This is when he has been condemned to crucifixion. And he's walking out to Calvary, to Golgotha. And as he goes, verse 27 says, following him is a great multitude of people and women mourning and lamenting for him. Jesus turns and says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus sees people weeping for him as he's going to be crucified, going to his death, something that he himself dreaded with uh, great anguish of soul and spirit. And he was sweating drops of blood in the garden. And he's going and he sees people weeping and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. He warns them of a coming judgment, a coming judgment on Jerusalem He had spoken of this already when he approached Jerusalem earlier in the gospel and he wept saying, would that you, even you knew the things that make for peace, but alas, they are hidden from your eyes. The day will come when Jerusalem is surrounded by siege works and not one brick will be left on top of another. He's retelling the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And that was the topic of the Olivet Discourse that he gave just a few days earlier. And that's on his mind now, as he sees these people of Jerusalem, as he sees these women of Jerusalem weeping, lamenting. He's thinking of the sufferings of others. How often does our own pain, our own problems, our own hurt blind us to the pain and problems and hurt of others? as we become self-focused and self-preoccupied and our own troubles and problems loom large, while those of others, we just can't even see them. If we're honest, that happens more than we would care to admit. But see the great compassion of Christ, that even in his final sufferings, as he walks the long road to Calvary, where he will be nailed to a Roman cross before all, he is filled with a loving concern for those around him. He warns them of the judgment that is coming if they do not repent and heed to his words. He was not blind to the needs of others, even in his final sufferings. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. The next speech from Jesus is found in verse 34. 
This is the verse that comes after Jesus's crucifixion. In verse 33, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. Jesus has been crucified. He's been nailed in his hands and his feet to a Roman cross. And at this point, we read of Jesus's first speech after being crucified. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not, Father, judge them. Father, vindicate me. Father, make it stop. Father, smite them down. Forgive them. Forgiveness was on his lips as he hung on the cross. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute you because that's what God your Father does. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He causes his son to rise on the unkind and the ungrateful and the evil. So be like God, love your enemies. But now in light of the cross, we could say, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you because this is what the son of God himself did. He loved and prayed for his enemies, his persecutor, his mockers, his executioners. In The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. Uh, uh, Corrie ten Boom relates the story of being taken into imprisonment and an extermination camp in the Nazi era of the Netherlands. Her sister Betsy goes with her and constantly Betsy is thinking of and praying for their captors. Corey is thinking of all the people they're harming and praying for them, which makes sense, obviously. Obviously we should. And yet Betsy so often was praying for the Nazis, for the Nazi officers, that they would be released from their blindness and know the grace and mercy of Christ. And she relates the story of after the war, going back to church and visiting churches as she goes around telling her story of how the Lord provided for her and sustained her through the imprisonments that she endured, how she shared her faith even in that extermination camp. And she goes to a church in Germany, in Nazi Germany, and she meets there one of her former uh, prison guards and She just feels in her heart, can I forgive this man? And she doesn't feel that she can. But yet, she made herself reach out anyway to him. And as they shook, she felt God gave her in that moment the grace to love this man. And we think of Jesus doing the same thing. Why would Jesus do this? Why would his first words after the crucifixion be for forgiveness for his, for his uh, persecutors. We'll see the love of Christ. See how his love flows even to those who are undeserving. Are you weighed down with a sense of your sin? Something you've done? Do you think you've gone too far that the love of Christ it just couldn't possibly be for you? Listen to Jesus. Father, forgive my murderers. 
Forgive those who called for my death. Forgive those who drove the nails into my hands and feet. Forgive them. This is not about what we deserve. We do deserve death. We do deserve judgment. We all do. The whole point of Jesus coming is so that we could get what we do not deserve. So that we could get forgiveness. So that our guilt could be counted as belonging to Christ. And Christ's perfection could be counted as belonging to us. For our sakes, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. If there is hope for the murderers of the sons of God, there is hope for you and me. The next words of Jesus are in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus speaks these words to the thief on the cross. Luke says he's crucified with two thieves, one on his left hand, one on his right. And one thief rails at him, joins in the jeering, the mocking, and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief rebukes him and says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Three things we learn from this reply of Jesus. First, something about the thief Jesus' reply identifies the thief as one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus heard some of the thief's last words and on that basis offered him this great assurance. What did the thief do? He rebuked another man's blasphemy. He acknowledges that he and the other thief are justly under the sentence of death. He acknowledges that Jesus is not worthy of death. This man has done nothing wrong. He believes that Jesus is the Christ and that he will come into his kingdom. And he asked Jesus to remember him in mercy. Briefly put, he acknowledges his guilt and unworthiness. He acknowledges Jesus's righteousness and worthiness. And he throws himself on Jesus' mercy. Do you want to enter the kingdom? The thief shows the way. Say, I am not worthy. He is worthy. And cast yourself on him. But we also see from Jesus' reply something about the heart and character of Jesus. That Jesus, in this moment of greatest weakness and greatest pain, as he has already been flogged and beaten and made to carry his cross some distance and then nailed to it, in this moment of greatest pain and weakness, Jesus is still saving people. Jesus saves from that state. He saves from the cross. Even then, he abounds in grace and mercy and saving power. 
Finally, we come to the final words of Christ as Luke records them in verse 46. Verse 46 comes after the long three hours that went from around noon to around 3 p.m. Verse 44 says that at about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And it's after this that Jesus calls out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. In the end, Jesus entrusted himself to his father. In the midst of his sufferings, surrounded by scoffers, bearing all the violent temptations the devil and man could devise, enduring even a sense of the absence of the Father's love, the absence of the Father's nearness and comfort, and rather the sense of the divine displeasure of sin and the curse of God resting upon him, his faith remained. He trusted God. He committed himself to the Father in faith, trusting that despite how things looked, despite how things felt, he could trust the Father's goodness. He could entrust himself to the good pleasure of his Father. The Father would receive him. He would receive his spirit. Even in death, he would be safe. The grace and favor and protection of God would abide through the experience of death itself. And this sort of confidence in and through death belongs to every one of us in Christ. John Calvin commenting on this passage says, let us now remember that it was not in reference to himself alone that Christ committed his soul to the Father, but that he included as it were in one bundle all the souls of those who would believe in him that they might be preserved along with his own. Jesus summing us all up when he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He commits all of our spirits and souls into the hands of the Father so that at our last day, we will be committed into those same merciful hands. When we come near death itself, we can face it knowing that God's goodness and protection reaches even there and beyond it. Not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Jesus undertook these final sufferings willingly. He never sinned, even in the midst of betrayal, persecution, suffering the weight of the divine judgment against sin. He trusted his father always. He showed love and compassion to unworthy sinners always. And he loved us in patiently enduring those sufferings and humbling himself to the point of death on the cross to pay our penalty, to bear our guilt and punishment, to set us free. So what can we do but 
receive this good gift with thanksgiving and walk in the example of his patience and humility. His body was broken. His blood was shed for you and for me. Let us pray.